Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homie. I am honored as your host by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Please visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where we help business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. When you visit our website, you'll see a breadth and depth of topics relevant to business creators just like you and the opportunity to sign up through your favorite syndication network so you get fresh content delivered to you every time we release a new episode. So uh, it's been a little while since we've covered what we're going to share with you today, but it's one of those timeless topics and people do get hit by it. Uh, So I wanted to recycle this because there have been some new things that have happened in this area, and I want to make sure everybody's up to speed. So when we have the opportunity to book the gentleman you're going to experience today, I left on it because this is something that's very important for all of us. We're going to be covering protecting your business from hackers. With that today, we have Brian Gill of Gillware. And let me tell you a little bit about Brian. Brian Gill is a computer scientist, entrepreneur, and angel investor. Due to his firm belief that data recovery shouldn't be a prohibitively expensive service, Brian founded Gilware, where he and his team specialize in cyber risk assessments, data recovery, and incident response. Brian not only speaks about his own journey in business growth, but he's dedicated to educating small business owners, startups, and entrepreneurs on how to protect themselves from hackers, providing action practice today. And I gotta tell you, I've been seeing some weird things going on out there lately, so that could not be a better time. Brian, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, let me tell you, um that uh that bio that you gave us uh, for me to read off, very impressive stuff. And candidly, I'm not sure if I'm eligible to be in this conversation with you and it's my show. Yeah, I'm not so, I'm not uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm eligible to have that bio. I mean, it's, a lot of fun uh, here at Business Creators Radio. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely uh, like to stay humble, and uh, I'm not the kind of person that spends a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror. And uh, those bios are definitely super embarrassing. But um, you know, we for the last 15 years, you know, m- my team and I, because again, I'm not like a one-man army or anything, but we've built a wonderful group of individuals who specialize in helping people prevent data disasters, and then when they don't, we help people dig out of those messes as well. Okay, great. Now, um, as I was about to say, um, I read off your uh, impressive official bio, but here's what we like to do. By now, some of our listeners have a separate browser tab open, and they are binging the Yahoo out of the Googles trying to discover more about Brian Gill and this Gillware company. So before we dive into the primary topic of what we're going to cover today, let's take a step back. And Brian, if you could share with us just a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion today. Sure. Um, So, you know, I was a computer nerd at heart and grew up and got my computer science degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This was in the heyday of the first kind of internet boom and bubble and burst. Uh, I went out to the valley and worked at a bunch of startups and 
learned a lot about business and risk and investments and venture capital and it learned a lot of hard lessons um, came back to Wisconsin started my own companies with a whole bunch of my friends and you know we've taken a lot of lumps I learned the hard way in a lot of different ways but again um, we started Gilware uh, basically back in 2003 uh, we officially incorporated around 2004 and started helping people with crashed storage devices so servers would crash or you know this was before smartphones so laptops would crash or you know SD memory cards would crash and people would want their stuff back and they would ship us that equipment and we would provide them that service and it evolved over the years from a small group of just my friends to we've got about just over 50 uh, scientists that that work with us right now to do everything from so we still do some of that crashed hard drive stuff but then we also uh, our primary focus these days is on what's called incident response which is really helping businesses dig out of hacks um, and respond to those incidents uh, which is why they call it that and then also with proactive risk assessment services where you know we basically go into businesses proactively some of whom just got burned by an incident and then we help prevent the next one but you know my story is um, I'm a jack of many trades um, and you know I play a lot of roles around here whether it's you know sales or marketing or working with some of our engineers or forensic scientists to communicate with clients or come on the occasional podcast with Adam um, and uh, you know, I, I try to spend about half my time with my with my wife and kids, and and just try to trying to enjoy some of the fruits of the labor for the last twenty years. Right. Well, you know, and um, and I think that's great. And I remember, see, I got my first computer in 1993. It was a leading edge computer. I don't even think that brand is still in business. But I remember I had Windows 3.1 and being nervous about Windows 95 because I kept hearing things about it. So uh, <laughs> I remember what it's like for the, for the computer to take five and a half minutes to boot up and thinking that's lightning speed. And now we have these smartphones that are on average 2,000 times as powerful as my first computer. And that was only 25 years ago. So we've come a long, long way. And 90s and when I went to college at Penn State, Yes, I had a GeoCities website. Yes, it had animated GIFs. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it will probably bore your audience to tears would be to know that my first computer didn't even have storage, so there was no hard drive. Um, they made them, but they were thousands of dollars, so there was no hard drive in my first computer. And not only that, it didn't even have, like, a floppy drive, so it was really – you could boot it up and you could do stuff and you could put cassettes in, but you know it was really hard to to save any of that work. It was an IBM PC Junior, so yeah. Now that everybody is already yeah. tuned out and bored to tears, we can move on. <laughs> actually, actually, I digress. My first personal computer, like we think of a PC today, was that leading edge machine from 1993. But the first thing that I actually had that would probably be considered a computer was uh, my Commodore VIC-20. There you go. And as far as hard drives, I actually had the hard drive where you used a, ca a cassette tape 
and use that as yeah. a hard drive. Wow. I, I mean, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just thinking. I, I actually was an expert at that, and if I tried to do it today, I'd probably be clueless. Uh, I remember uh, trying. To, I remember using the Commodore VIC-20 to invent new colors and invent those uh, new MIDI sounds and playing that uh, that game Pirate Cove where I would type, sure. get torch, uh, open door, shine light, <laughs> jump off cliff. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, all right, so hackers, um, you know, there's a lot of them out there, and uh, I have a couple specific questions I'm going to ask as we go along here. But first of all, what I'd like to do is sort of lay a foundation for our listeners' understanding of what's going on today uh, so they have the most current information and how what they can by finding terms. Tell us, uh, what is a ransomware event, and why is it that we keep hearing that term, ransomware? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, people have been hacking networks, you know, since the network was a thing. And a lot of times, like when I was growing up, you know, you would you would hack things just because you were kind of an angsty 13-year-old who knew how to program a little bit. And there's, those guys are still out there, but the, but there's a new, and, and relatively new, it's been happening for maybe four years now, um, and it has all to do with cryptocurrency. So the advent of all these anonymous, rapid, instant payment options like Bitcoin or Ethereum is that the bad guys have a method to get paid for those hacks. And not just get paid, but get paid anonymously so that they can get their money, they can get it instantly, and the authorities, whether that's a global authority, a federal authority, a state authority, even though they know that the money went, there's no checking account on the other end registered to anybody. There's no briefcase of cash that they can put a GPS tracker in. Right. You know, there's no way for them to know who just received that money. And so that's really, that was the paradigm shift, where the bad guys have a way for anybody in the world who they hold up for ransom to pay. So all they needed to do then was instead of just hacking for fun or hacking to exfiltrate or take the data and try to sell the data on the dark web, which is some of the stuff that people used to do where they used to try to steal financial information like credit card numbers and either utilize them to buy a bunch of crap or sell them as kits. But now they can hold the city of Baltimore or the city of Atlanta ransom by encrypting all their data on their networks and then have them pay $800,000 instantly. And so that's the real wow. thing to understand is, is and, you know, it's not just some 13-year-old kid, Kevin Mitnick type, that's angsty and, and hacking the world just because that's the moment they're in the life. These are quasi-legitimate organized crime with large organizations and tiered structures and managers and customer support reps and, oh, by the way, hackers, you know, and they're making, I think, you know, it's fair to say at this point, billions of dollars from these hacks. And they reinvest that wow. in further technology and growing their teams and more exploits. And, you know, so they are very, very good at what they do and, Everybody is a target. Most of their targets are businesses because businesses are the most likely to, to pay those ransoms. But, you know, 
even just normal people sometimes come to their personal computer at their house and everything's encrypted and they're demanding a $500 ransom, you know, so it's happening to everybody. Yeah. You know, this happened to somebody in my family, somebody who's actually extremely intelligent. So this wasn't some uh, noob or somebody who was clueless, who was being manipulated and taken advantage of, although they did, get, you know, candidly get fooled. They were, you know, browsing on the Internet. They weren't in any really gray areas. Uh, they're probably, if I, you know, from what I know this person, they were probably looking on eBay for something, uh, probably looking to trade coins or something along those lines. And next thing you know, they get this alert that says that their computer has been uh, basically commandeered, so you know, ransom, and they were given a phone number to call. So I'm yeah. listening to this story, and they said, yeah, well, we called the number, and you, know, you can tell they're a reputable company. They're called IT Solutions. You hear about them on the news all the time, and I'm, I, had my, I had my hand up on my forehead. And I'm thinking, yeah. why are you telling me this on Sunday? Because you kind of need to go to the bank right now. <laughs> Fortunately, yeah. they were able to get to the bank first thing Monday morning and stop that payment in time. Because it was just, uh, it's like, all you got to do is you just got to, if, if you don't want to mess with it yourself, take the computer. Uh, thank goodness you have that Best Buy warranty on it. They will fix it for you. And just get that wiped out and go on. Now, here's a, since we're mentioning ransomware, there's a common form of ransomware we've been seeing a lot of. At least I think it's ransomware. You'll be able to uh, break this down for me. A lot of folks have been getting these emails where one of their old passwords is in the subject of the email, yeah. and the gist of the email is, ooh, I turned on your webcam, and I saw what you, what you were doing while you were looking at this <laughs> website, and if you don't, get, if you don't give yeah. me like $1,000 in Bitcoin right now, I'm going to tell your boss. Yeah, yeah, that's a really common one. I mean, it's like the new African prince, you know. I mean, I think everybody's gotten that email, and there's a reason. Um, yeah. You know, it, a lot of it came from the Yahoo hack, which was like five years ago at this point. But the bad guys were able to get, and they still have, you know, hundreds of millions of people's clear text passwords. And a lot of that happens because the companies that we entrust to, you know, perform these services are sometimes pretty terrible at, at security. And they allow these large databases <clears throat> to get breached in a hack, and the passwords are not basically encrypted and salted so that when they get such a database, now we have it. And, and there are, like, databases of owned passwords. And one of the services that we provide for our clients is we will – take all of their passwords sometimes and shove them through those databases and just let people know, hey, you know, you're th these 13 employees have owned passwords. Um, but, you know, where we're really trying to move forward is to kind of move password less and start to adopt some emerging technology called U2F. Um, there's a couple of, you know, implementations that are starting to, to gain some popularity. But in general, you know, the, the lesson to be learned is, um, you know, don't don't check <laughs> never check your email. Uh, you know, I mean, half my email is just people trying to hack me these days, and I think it's similar for most people. Um, be very very skeptical about any internet pop-ups or any uh, emails that you get from from people that you're not familiar with. 
pay attention. You know, one of the one of the sneakiest things that happens sometimes is you'll get an email from someone you know, and if you look real close, you'll see it's not their normal email address, but it's like a Gmail uh-huh. account or a Hotmail account. Um, because yep. again, they ha- you know they have these lists of known associates, and they can go to LinkedIn and see all oh, these are the 50 people that work at the company, and you know you'll have one of your employees get an email from you know Brian Gill at Gmail or something like, hey, are you in the office today? A real just standard question, and 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 they might even apply. Yeah. Yep, I'm in the office, Brian. What do you need? And now they say, oh, and and. They start asking for very, very small things in, in order to make the conversation seem legitimate, and then they'll drop the hammer and say, "Actually, can you go to my computer and log in, and you know, bring up, go to my PC and let me log in remotely?" My, my, for whatever uh-huh. reason, I can't. And oh shoot, yeah, of course, you're on a client site, Brian, and you need what? Everything for you, sir. You know, you know, and that's so they'll start <clears throat> pretending to be somebody that you know. They'll get into like a normal, seemingly normal conversation, and you know, half an hour in or an hour in, that's when they'll actually ask for that sensitive information to get sent or for that data access. So, and sometimes it's even creepier than that because Brian Gill's account got hacked. You know, there's a bad guy on Brian Gill's desktop, and he's emailing everybody he knows all kinds of goofy questions, hoping that a handful fall for it. You know, so it's. The amount of skepticism we need to have when we are ever paying money for anything or transmitting money or giving people access to information just needs to be dialed up for, for everybody. And some of these folks, um, even before some of this recent stuff, I remember this was like 10 years ago, uh, a client of mine suddenly started messaging me uh, through Facebook Messenger, which is kind of weird because this client very rarely logs into Facebook. And... Um, they were telling me that they were stranded in London because they got mugged and they need me to send them $500 via Western Union urgently. Yep. Now, what was frightening about it is the way that this hacker was phrasing the what they were typing, it actually kind of sounded like my client, so I more than halfway believed yeah. But then I thought to myself, yeah, it, you know, dude, you know, dude, you know, dude, you know, you're kind of busy here, and I, I, I'm having this conversation with myself and saying, so, you know, you're kind of busy here, and I know you've got a lot of things on your plate, but you know full well that this client just took his wife to Ocean City, Maryland for the weekend. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think he uh, surprised her with first-class tickets to London. So I called him at his office, and he said he didn't even say, uh, he didn't even, like, you know, give his official business greeting where he said his name, or he didn't say, yo, dude, because he saw me on the ID. He said, he said, that's not me on Facebook. So he was already aware yeah. of the issue and was already in the process of changing the password because somebody else had told him. So uh, I said, all right, man, you on it? And he said, yeah, ignore that ignore that bastard. And I was like, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to have a little bit of fun with this person. So uh, I still had my client on the phone. I said, hey, you want to have a little bit of fun? And uh, he's still a little mischievous, feeling kind of cute. And I, and I said, uh so uh, I started typing in. I said, so you say you're in London, you got mugged, and you need me to send you a Western Union right now to get you back to the United States. So where is your office in the United States? And he said, and the hacker said, Chicago. I said, really? And where are you right now? 
um, in London. So why is it that even as I type this, you're on the telephone in your home office in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? <laughs> and the hacker actually started getting mad, saying that I was speaking with an imposter. <laughs> <laughs> So these people can be tricky, and the thing is, they can sometimes get really nasty, too, and you just got to be aware of that. So, uh, you know, we have this ransomware, and we have these funny little stories, some of which are, you know, varying degrees of humor. In some cases, it's not very funny at all. But I heard you say earlier that the recent drive in things like ransomware is driven by cryptocurrency, uh, and we are aware that a lot of these spam emails say, uh, send us $500 in Bitcoin and we won't tell your boss about your porn. Uh, right. So, uh, I, mean, I mean, aside from the fact that it's an easy way to get people to transfer money that is not easily traceable, how else is cryptocurrency driving this whole ransomware thing? Well, again, that's the – it's just allowed the bad guys to get easily paid in an untraceable manner. I mean – it's the again the it's not that cryptocurrency is a bad thing. I mean, one of the major reasons for the emergence is you know billions of people live in countries where the governments are very oppressive, right? And right. those governments have very tight controls on what you can buy and where and what you're allowed to invest in as a citizen or if you're allowed to invest in things. You know, we always take for granted here in the United States that, yeah, we can start a retirement account and we can put money in it and that money can get invested in mutual funds and we can take some cash out of the ATM and give our friends and family money for things or gifts for people. And, you know, we have those luxuries. Um, not every country has that. And Correct. we also, you know, so again, a lot of the reasons for the emergence of this anonymous by design cryptocurrency is for people in those countries to be able to save money or invest it where they want or, you know, use it to push to retirement accounts or use it to push to their friends for services or products where the government, you know, would not necessarily be involved or, you know, but at the same time, that anonymity can be used for criminals. Um, you know, if that that's the nature of it. I mean, it's, it's to protect against oppressive governments, but it also has that byproduct where it makes it really difficult to do some of the traditional ways you would hunt for criminals. You know, so it's, yeah. it just kind of is a tech. It's not evil. It's not good it's 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 a new thing and it's not going anywhere um and it's pretty convenient in a lot of different ways um and even companies like facebook are getting into it with their or they're trying to kind of emerge with their own you know cryptocurrencies because it is so valuable and they see the value in it so they're investing in their own you know tokens and things but um as far as it's just you know it just has allowed criminals to move money around in easier, less traceable mechanisms, whether you're a, you know, narcotic distributor with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and you have so much cash you don't even know what to do with it, 
well, maybe you should take some of that and just take it to a Bitcoin ATM and, you know, put it in a in an e-wallet that is easy to transport and it's in my phone in my wallet. And if I get arrested, I don't have $20,000 on me. I mean, it helps the bad guys too, you know, but it's, um, I think that pretty much answers it. You know, so what, so what I'm hearing here is it's sort of a byproduct of one of those things that's not necessarily either good or bad. It's just a matter of what it is. And just like pretty much anything that's good can be used for evil, this is just another one of those cases. And I found it interesting because even I had never thought of this, that in some ways the same networks that the cryptocurrency and ransomware hackers used to do their evil is also a place where good things can happen, especially when we're looking to do things that are outside the purview of an oppressive government, uh, and especially in cases where the government is both oppressive and not particularly all that sophisticated, so it's relatively easy to use these channels. So think of it as like the cyber black market is what came to my mind. Yeah, I mean, imagine you live in a in a country where the government doesn't allow you to financially report or support a certain religion, or it doesn't allow you to transfer funds to an opposition candidate, right? Um, right. There's a lot of people that live in those situations, and having an anonymous app on their phone where they can push a couple buttons and have that happen without that government being able to snoop on that transaction and hold it against you or arrest you for it, you know, it's it's pretty great. And, you know, if you happen to be in a country like America, right, and you want to send money back home to your family in that previous country, whereas what were your options before? You could try to send some sort of a postal mail with a bunch of cash in it. You could try to do some complicated you know, wire transfer from your bank in the United States that would go 81 different steps to get to that bank in Iran, and then you have to hope that the Iranian government let you have it (laughs) and the amount of fees Uh that it would cost and the amount of time it would take. Or I can just, you know, push a couple buttons, and five seconds later the money is in their account. So it it is. It's a neutral technology, and... It is superior in a lot of different ways to to the old school way that people used to push money around, um, but it does have some benefits for for people that would use it for non altruistic purposes. Yeah, I mean, as I said, just like anything can be used for both good and for evil, and you got to and just by calling something evil necessarily you got to sometimes look beyond that and you got to look at history and you got to look at intent so some of these same things that are used to uh just to create a visual to to con oblivious old ladies into handing over their life savings in exchange for the promise of 10 million dollars are sometimes used to help uh, old ladies in other countries get medicines that are that are prohibited they need to survive or to have a chance at freedom that they've never seen before in their country or haven't experienced lately. So I just use that colloquialism just so that people can get a visual of how you can take the same picture and put it in a couple different places. So we've spoken about these uh, oppressive governments and how cryptocurrency is sort of a 
way to escape their purview and fight for freedom, so to speak. So aside from that, how is it that government agencies are not having more success catching all these computer criminals, aside from the fact that it's sort of like the cryptocurrency black market? Yeah, so crypto is definitely a big part of it, but, you know, you got to start with the fact that these criminals who are hacking into these networks are really freaking good with computers, okay? So as dumb as that, obvious as that is, you know, they're very familiar with network security, and they're very familiar with how to obfuscate their IP addresses, and they're very aware that any little thread that they leave behind is going to possibly get used against them down the road. So they are very, very savvy with how they communicate, and they're very, very, um, you know, you can try to trick them, and you can try to send them an email and put like a pixel in it, put like a reference to a website, and, you know, if they load that email and download that picture, you can see, oh, okay, I've got the IP address that just downloaded that picture. Like, government agencies have tried a number of these different types of things to try to, to track down where they are, but as a general rule, it doesn't really go anywhere. And another, I'd say the biggest problem is a lack of resources. So, you know, we deal with, in our incident response group, I would say just on average, maybe a dozen large hacks a week. Okay, so two or three times a day, we are engaging with a business that usually has kind of 200 to 1,000 employees, so relatively large businesses where they had a breach and they often, you know, had their data stolen and exfiltrated and they had all these things. And um, I would say that and this is not an indictment on our law enforcement here in the United States, but I would say on average, maybe one in 20 do we see any actual investigative work or where a government agency asks us to, to work with them or to turn over our evidence to try to get up, for them to kind of get on the hunt to try to find these guys. So it's not that it never happens, but in an ideal world, it would happen every single time, right? So, you know, why are they only investigating less than 5% of these, of these major hacks? You know, how many of the small $500, $1,000 hacks are they investigating? Probably sub 1%. It's just a problem of right. lack of resources. They don't have enough investigators um, to possibly triage it. I mean... In an ideal world, you know, if we were going to run a $2 trillion deficit, man, it'd be nice to take like $50 million of it and hire an extra 500 investigators. You know, that would be yeah. something that I would like to see happen. Um, but there's just so much of it going on. There's just a mountain to, to deal with, and we're dealing with a very small percentage of it just due to a lack of funding at the federal and state governments. Right. So combined with how the platform and the environment in which the hackers and the ransomware people are running is somewhat difficult to trace and regulate with the fact that there's only so much money and so much manpower for regulation in general 
And to a degree, it falls upon that individual, falls upon that business owner to protect themselves. And I would say that step one, if you ask me, and you obviously can override me here, is simply being aware, doing some of those things that we're supposed to be doing all along, which is if you see a suspicious pop-up, don't call the number. If you see an email that allegedly comes from the FBI, know that if the FBI actually wants you, they're going to show up at your door with a warrant. Uh, know that um, if you're, um, that if you're uh, going to uh, be held responsible for some sort of IRS tax liability, they're not going to call you on the phone and demand that you pay it up immediately using gift cards for Xbox or anything <laughs> like that. They're going to send you a letter in the mail with a subpoena. And it's going to have the word audit in big red letters on it. I mean, just yeah. common sense stuff like that. So I think – Well, I, I would agree with you, Adam, in, in the, with, with the first thing you said, which is um, you've got to start somewhere and you've got to start with knowledge. But I, I, what I would twist on that is I would say if you're running a successful business – this world of cryptocurrency and authentication and passwordless entry and network security and firewalls, you know, this is an area where most business owners have very little knowledge. And they're running their day-to-day -day business and they're doing all these things. And the general attitude is, well, you know, I pay a managed service provider. I pay a computer guy. I have an IT staff. And... They're, they're, they're stuck in a world of like a decade ago where it was okay to just be ignorant and hire a tech person to do computery stuff, right? That's, that's the world where a lot of these people came from, and we don't live in that world anymore. And it's not just that you need to be increase your level of personal savvy where you're more skeptical and less trusting and um, just kind of smarter about the types of social engineering that are happening. But I would like to see business owners dial up their personal attitude of learning about this stuff so that they are at least able to budget for security properly. We just talked about how I, my belief is that our government is underfunded this fight to the tune of, oh, I think that you could easily 20x the amount of money they're spending right now to combat this criminal element. And they wouldn't even, it would be a better than the world we live now, but it wouldn't be a dent. It's the same story at almost every business we look at in our risk assessment where they are dramatic, they're running at the same levels of IT spending as they were 10 years ago. And they have not, at the highest level of the organization, decided to increase that spend. And then they haven't educated themselves enough to be able to make sure that they spend it effectively in a way that's going to mitigate as many of the high-profile risks as possible. Um, you know, just for one example, like we might get a call for somebody that wants a pen test, which is shorthand for a penetration test. They want to pay us to try to hack their network. Okay. Right. You know, they, it's, an, it's like, yeah, there is a lot of value in a pen test, but poking at the organization externally, first of all, we'll hack you. It just depends on how much time you want to give us. 
you know, pay us enough money, we'll hack you every single time. Uh, it's And it's not a, you know, it's not an if, but it's a how much does it toss. And usually it can happen in like less than a day. And so, but the point is, there's much better ways to spend that money than dropping 10 grand on a pen test, you know, and you have to educate yourself and make sure that at the board level of your company and at the executive level of your company, the non-IT people need to understand that you're probably at a ton of risk. And this is not one of those fake boogeymen that a lot of times, you know, kind of savvy marketing people like to paint these pictures. Like, this is real. There is real bona fide threats. And what's going to happen to your business when bad guys are on your network for the last three months and they steal all your clients' data and you show up to work on Monday and everything's encrypted and they're demanding $400,000 in ransom payments. Like that is happening to dozens and dozens of businesses every single day in this country. And everybody's a target. And you have to make sure your organization is doing like the top 12 things to stay ahead of the curve because the bear is coming and you don't necessarily have to be faster than the bear, but boy, you better be faster than the other people that are all running from it, you know? Well, here's a uh, – so, you know, we're we're saying that uh, companies will have these ransomware people hanging out on their networks and in their files, and then they come in one Monday morning, and all of a sudden everything's seized up, and they have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars if they want to see their files. Is there a way to uh, help mitigate this by redundant backups, or yeah. in your experience, do the hackers tend to go after the redundant backups as well? Well, and what what surprises people is people will say, oh, I've got a backup. I'm good, right? And there's, this, there's a bunch of different caveats to that. But the key thing to understand is the average time that the bad guys have been on the network that we find is about three months. So when they have that network intrusion, they don't just encrypt everything that day and then throw up the ransomware. And it's not some automated piece of software doing the work. This is a human, a really smart freaking human, who is going to get into your accounts, and they are going to take their time. And they're going to do their best they can to understand the network topography and understand where the backups go. And they're going to listen Every email you send, they're going to get onto your email provider, O365, and they're going to set up automatic forwarding rules. And every single email that that executive that they hacked gets, they're going to read. And if that email says something like wire transfer or checking account, or if it has a bunch of digits in a row, they're going to get an alert. And they're going to say, oh, you know, this manufacturer in Wisconsin is trying to wire transfer $500,000 to their supplier in China. And they're going to sit there and wait and wait and wait until something like that pops up. And then they're going to say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to reply to this email, but I'm going to change the the checking account number. I'm going to change the wire transfer information request. And what will probably happen is this business is going to wire $500,000 to the wrong account. And right. when they email the supplier and say, well, where's my stuff? 
they're going to say, oh, sorry, we had a slight delay, you know, with the thing. It'll be on the boat tomorrow. Um, sorry for the delay. And, and then, you know, two weeks later, he's like, well, what the hell? My stuff is still isn't here. And then they get him on the phone, and it's like, what? We never got your payment. We never got any orders. So they're going to wait uh -huh. and do some tricky things. And then after they've done some event like that and after they've understood the network topography so they can kill all the backups if they can, then at the very last thing they're going to do is they're going to, you know, basically use the ransomware to encrypt every piece of data for the organization so that they can effectively hold that organization up and they don't have that recourse. But to answer your question, should you have backups? Hell yeah. And the key thing is you've got to run something on a different network with a different layer of network authentication. Um, if, you, if you think you have a backup and it's like a USB drive that's like plugged into your computer right now, that is not a backup. It is a redundant <laughs> copy of the data. It sits on the same computer, and when that fire or flood or theft or, in this case, a hacker gets in there, it's not going to help you. They're going to encrypt that too, right? If it's on, if you got some, you know, if it's the same username and password to log into your backups, well, guess what? They're going to log into that service and they're going to delete everything or they're going to encrypt everything. So you need a backup. And we've, what we also see sometimes is that these backups are happening automatically and all the data on the computer gets encrypted and it backs all that encrypted data up. If your backup service uh -huh. is not keeping snapshotting or if it's not keeping change history so I can say, hey, backup provider, I don't need the stuff that's my current backup. I need the stuff from three days ago. Not every backup provider does that. And, and some of these backup providers, right. if the data is deleted on premise, they say, oh, I guess, you know, I guess Adam doesn't need that data anymore, and we'll just wipe it too. So is your backup any good? You know, just because you have one doesn't mean it's any good. And the last thing I'm going to say about backup, and this is a subject I know quite a bit about. Um, the last thing I'll say about it is you need to audit those backups every at least three months for completeness so that you actually know you're backing up your accounting data and your architecture design work and your Word documents and your emails. But you also need to know how long does it take you to recover with that because, you know, if, yeah, everything's backed up and it's going to take us six days to download all this crap from, like, an Amazon Glacier account, well, geez, you know, my production line is going to be down. I'm losing $100,000 a day for six days, all because they'd never restored from the backup and they didn't understand how long it took. And, they, you know, at least if you know how long it takes, you can have, your business can have a disaster recovery policy where you know, hey, to all my employees, it's going to take us two business days to dig out of this. Tell all of our vendors it's going to take us six days to be processing orders. So it's not enough just to have a backup. It needs to work. It needs to be there. It needs a different layer of network authentication. And you need to understand how long it takes to restore from it. Well, I'm so happy that you shared that point because uh, – that is, you know, there's a couple things about backups that are very important, one of which is, is redundancy. Uh, another is that you don't have just like the day before. I mean, there are some, like if we want to talk about something simple that a lot of business creators understand, it's having a WordPress website. And there are many, 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 many plugins you can use to create backups of your WordPress site. 
Uh, the one that we'd recommend, uh, that we use for our business, it's called Backup Creator, backupcreator.com, created by Robert Plank and Lance Tamashiro. It's a great plugin, and it allows you to basically take a zip file of your WordPress site with all of its files and its MySQL database, and you can send it up to Amazon, you can send it to Dropbox, you can send it to a different FTP server, you can have a copy of it emailed to you if your email can handle large attachments. You can do all of these things. You can set it for daily. You can set it for weekly. You can set it for monthly. And this is a very simple plugin. It's $47 a year in most cases, unless you have like a zillion websites. And people will say, oh, well, I don't need that. My host does backups. And I'll yeah. say, okay, so your your hosting company does backups. That's great. So first of all, one of our most common them, types of customers, Adam, uh-huh. is WordPress yeah. hosts. I can't exactly. tell you how many times we get that call, and everything uh-huh. that the WordPress hosting and the backups are all encrypted, and the whole organization is being held up for a quarter million dollars. So um, I would yeah, say, me, and again, yeah. I, I, the particular product, I'm not here to push any particular product, but what I can say is, oh, yeah. Those spending that money to get that first tier backup and spending fifty dollars a year, that sounds like really intelligent spend to me. If they have yeah. like a pro plan that has a couple hours of support and a phone number, um and it costs another twenty dollars, buy that one. Take it. And more than that, take it. Document what the heck it is. So, you know, your organization should have like ideally a one or two page disaster plan that's human readable it's not 500 ah. pages and there should be like a paragraph in it in a subject that's called like the website and if our website host ever crashes or if it gets cryptoed or or you know if there's ever any pro- or some human makes a horrible mistake and they tried to upgrade it and the thing just took a huge dump and we're losing thousands of dollars an hour because our website isn't up, and that's how we take orders here. Well, have you know the three steps to do it. Step one: call this number, give them this account number, and then yeah. they'll basically push it to some alternate host. And this is the alternate host that we've got on standby, and this is the username. And hopefully, you don't put the password in there, but hopefully, you say how to authenticate into it. And you know, again, follow these six steps to have our website yeah. back up. And if you do it, it should take 20 minutes and have it be complete. Hand it to some, you know, hand it to somebody in your company who is less less computer savvy than, than many, right? Hand it to somebody who is, you know, not the brightest bulb. Like, not the, you know, again, just hand it to somebody and hand them the doc and say, go. And see if they understand how to do it. And if they're like, what's a DNS? Okay, we'll put something in that document that explains what the hell a DNS is and how to repoint it to a different IP address. So, you know, right, make sure the server is spelled out what have you, yeah. Make sure there's no tribal knowledge in your head as the guy writing that disaster plan because you might exactly, not work at the company yeah. 3 years from now. You might be on vacation to Honolulu and, you know, you can't so you don't want if, if you have to hand it to somebody who isn't super IT savvy, and if they can restore the website in 20 minutes, well, then that's a good job. Congratulations, you've got a good plan. And just make sure that you audit it and make sure that you do it every three months because sometimes you switch hosts, right, or you switch the app. Uh 
and then nobody goes back to the stupid disaster plan and updates it. So again, uh-huh. three months later, you go to restore from it, and it's like, well, what the hell? This is our website from April. Yeah, okay, update the damn plan. And if you don't have a schedule, whereas you audit these backups, then they're not any good, or they might not be good. Yeah. Yeah. See, you're a genius, Brian, because you're thinking you you were thinking the exact same thing that I was thinking. You basically came out and said that and much more. So great minds think alike here. Uh, what I and 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 wrapped it up in that. What I was saying is, okay. So you say, well, your hosting company has a backup plan. Great. How many how many days does it go back? How many copies do they keep? Um, how much are you paying per gig? I mean, there's a lot of questions you need to, need to ask about that because I've seen hosting companies. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention HostGator out loud, uh, but uh, I've seen them willfully block any third party backup plugins and brag about it on a blog post they put. They say, ha ha ha, we blocked all these plugins and listed like 50 of them, of which backup creator that I mentioned earlier was one of them, and uh, their own backups. Well, let's just say that a friend of mine found out a hard way. They left, they left uh, pretty much everything to be desired. So my point being here is if you say, well, I don't need no backup plugins. I don't need to have a disaster plan. I don't need to be auditing to make sure the backups are actually clicking. Uh, I ask this question. All right, so you're relying on your host to protect you. What happens when, and this is a real story, this is a real story, your host's server room, gets flooded because the fire suppression system goes off and they're down for a week and they can't even turn their servers on. Does your business wait a week? Or do you pull out that disaster plan, knowing where the backups are, having checked to make sure the backups are working, knowing how to log into your backup host where you move at least the primary website to get them up and running quickly so you can get back to doing business ASAP? Yeah, and I guess, you know, probably because we're coming up on an hour here uh, and we haven't talked on the subject at all, but it's also important to understand that no matter how good a job we do with all these mechanics and no matter how good your disaster plan is and no matter how much you spend on IT security and patch management and social engineering training and email security, no matter what, you still can have problems. And, you know, Equifax, when Equifax got hacked, I did a quick LinkedIn search and they had over 100 people that worked for them that, that were CISSP. They had that acronym, CISSP, which means they're bad, you know, they're really good. I, I was going to say something I wasn't sure of if I could use my <laughs> French here. But, you know, they're really excellent Internet security professionals. And they still got got they're like bad all the way got, right? Yeah, bad Everybody, They, they had they like 100. They're bad they still got got, yeah. Yeah, and they still got got. So, and they, they worked really, really hard to, to protect that, and they lost, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, what's important, what every business should have, because almost none of you are going to have your own CISSP that works in your building or a CISO acronym. And, you know, understand, like, if these things happen, what is our cyber insurance policy look like? What does it cover us for? What doesn't it cover us for? Or in this case, you know, if you had, a, a website host go down all the way down and your website was down for six weeks or six days and it was going to cost your organization a quarter million dollars, would your business insurance cover that situation or not? You know, a lot of businesses have these insurance policies, but they don't understand them at all. And again, you know, it's, you know, read the stupid policy 
And there's going to be a bunch of confusing jargon in there, and do your best to understand it and ask your reps and document that question. If this happens, am I covered? And if, if you got an email from your rep saying yes, well, that is going to hold up <laughs> when it comes time to utilize it. So most businesses are throwing money at these business insurance and cyber insurance policies by now, but a lot of times they're pretty surprised at how little they cover and which which things get excluded from that coverage. So, you know, understand those policies too. Yeah, that's something that a lot of folks don't think about is uh, business insurance. And um, and if you work uh, out of a home office, uh, what about your homeowners? I mean, it's your home, homeowners. If you yeah, rent, I would if you say that if, if you're, you're – renters. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, these things are there too. Yeah, I mean the homeowners insurance again. Like if you're if you've got a successful home business, okay. Obviously, if you've got a business that's your side hustle and it's making you five hundred dollars a month and it's a lot of fun for you and it's a hobby business, yeah. Do you want to spend two thousand dollars a year on an insurance policy? No. You know that's what you do no. with that type of risk. You just polish it up and eat it. Right, I mean, and that can be a good right. decision, and, and even large organizations can do that. But if you've got a successful home business where it's doing tremendous revenue, and if you were down for three or four days, you would it would cost you a certain amount of money. You should investigate how much a policy would be. And oh, by the way, if on a small policy like that, if your home computer gets hacked into and data exfiltrated, and you're held up for a $7,500 ransom, there's about a 0% chance your homeowners is going to cover that, right? You're, you're going to Found that out that the hard way myself. Found that out yeah. the hard way myself personally. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just saying in the event of physical damage, it's another place that people might want to look at. But to your point, yeah, if you uh, have a business you're running out of the home and this is the business that supports your lifestyle or it's a big enough business that uh, it actually brings in significant revenue, then, yeah, step up the business insurance. And, again, or not, but just understand your decision. Like, that's the yeah. – don't be ignorant about whether or not you have a policy and what it might cover. If you look at it and run the numbers and say, you know what, I'm not going to spend that much money on this insurance. I'd rather just roll the dice because that's a better financial decision. Great. Awesome. Just do the math, you know, is kind of my right. demand of anybody that's serious about what they're doing. Understand what you're doing. Understand the risks that you're taking and why. Or when it makes sense, you know what, I'm going to mitigate this risk. You know, it's my home business, but it's actually like I do tax preparation and I've got hundreds of business clients and I've got a great lifestyle. And, boy, if my stuff got hacked, you know, that would be horrible and devastating for my business. Maybe it makes sense to talk with an insurance broker and make sure that I'm adequately covered if the worst happens. Right, 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 right. Very true, very true. So as we uh, come to the top, come to the top of our time here together, I know we have just a few minutes left. Um, I just uh, wanted to, I just wanted to check in one more time and just make sure that we've covered pretty much everything that we need to cover. We have about uh, five minutes left, so just. Uh, just give us the one-minute version of this. Uh, business wants to do something today. They listen to this. They want to do something right now. What are a couple actionable things that small businesses can do right now to improve their IT security and get it done this afternoon? 
Sure thing. Uh, number one, spend more money that you're spending right now. Um, kind of even number zero or the first thing you should do is buy in to the fact that you're going to have to learn about some of this stuff and you're going to have to ask some embarrassing questions. As business owners, we're often, you know, have healthy egos and we want to think that we know it all and understand that you're going to have to wade into some waters where you're a little bit ignorant right now and, and go into that with your board and with your fellow executives with a healthy attitude that, hey, we're going to have to learn about this stuff. Um, I guess number two, um, and I'm just going to go through a handful of things, but um, passwords are the devil, okay? Most people yep. listening have like one or two or three passwords for every freaking service. It's a horrible way to live. You're going to get owned. Um, I would recommend moving the whole organization to a platform that is passwordless. Um, again, I don't have any vendor relationship with them, but there's a product called YubiKey that will essentially replace passwords for the organization, and that has a whole mess of benefits that help prevent things like spoofing and all kinds of stuff that can happen. So, uh, but it also prevents like your employees from having that one or two passwords for every freaking thing, which they all do. Yeah. So again, within the walls of this organization, you know, we're we're a passwordless company, and I rolled out these $50 YubiKeys to every employee. Uh, I guess you know a couple more things. Uh, patch management, and boy, what you know. Again, like most people, when they get that alert on their you know computer that says, "Hey, you know, I need you to update this crap because I'm I'm behind on the operating system levels." Uh, you know, the average that we see is that it takes, especially larger organizations, like months sometimes to patch. And they're like, yeah. "Oh, well, if we patch and we don't test it, then it's going to break all of our applications." Well, if you don't patch it, you're going to get owned because there's a lot of these zero-day exploits that these bad guys are, are exploiting. And if you don't patch your operating system with these known exploits, you're going to lose everything. So, again, take your medicine, have a patch management strategy. And, if, again, if you're paying a, a managed service provider, ask them what the patch management platform is or at least that it exists because – if you're relying on your employees to patch their own computers, well, forget it. Um, your <laughs> firewall. Your business needs a firewall, even if it's a home business. You cannot have remote desktop enabled on your operating system. Because yeah. we all do, because we all work from home. We all work from the road. We all work when we're on the beach. We're yeah. all doing that kind of stuff these days. That RDP needs 100% to be behind a multi factor firewall. It's not enough just to log into your firewall with a username and password. Because what did we just say? Right. Passwords are the devil and passwords yep. suck. And if all I need is username and password to get on your network, well, there's already bad guys in your network probably. So you need exactly. a, like a rotating like Google Authenticator code or yep. a rotating Forda token. Um, and again, what will blow your mind, Adam, is like how many businesses already have paid for a firewall like a Cisco or a Sonic Wall or a FortiGate that supports two-factor authentication. They've already paid for it. And a lot of times they also support what's called endpoint security where, you know, or where, you know yeah. I know that that's Brian Gill's laptop, that's his MAC address, yep, that's his username and password, and I just asked Brian Gill for his rotating six-digit code on his smartphone that changes every 20 seconds. Boom, boom, boom. There's three factors of trust there. 
now Brian can get on the network and RDP onto his stupid box, right? You, the organizations are already paying for it. It's just not on. Turn it on. Um, you know, right. And again, two-factor everywhere. Your every major internet service that people use, whether it's your company's Twitter accounts, or whether it's your Gmail account, or whether that's your bank, or whether that's Microsoft itself for your email hosts. They all support two-factor authentication. Do it. It, it. it takes an extra 10 seconds every time you log into something. That is inconvenient. That inconvenience is the price that we pay. That's to, to, to keep us one step ahead of the bear. Okay, so some of the things that you're going to do to make yourself more secure are going to be inconvenient and they're going to cause these little problems and little delays. That's why the organization needs to buy in at the top. It doesn't do any good to roll out these security efforts if some executive is going to say, well, this is BS. It takes me 20 seconds to log into my computer and I'll fix it. And then the IT guy who works for that guy, says, oh, okay, we're going to be maybe less secure. Again, it, the CFOs and the CEOs and the board members, they all need to be on board with the plan and not getting in the way. Um, so, again, I could ramble about 50 more things technically you could do, but start by getting passwords out of your life. Get yourself a nice firewall or turn on the two-factor authentication or the three-factor authentication. And... Um, social engineering training for your people, make sure your machines are patched and up to date on patches within hours, not days, not weeks, not months. If you've got some old machine in the corner running that Windows XP we talked about, yeah, that thing needs to go away. You need to upgrade that damn thing to, to a modern operating system that's patched, you know. So there's a million different yeah. things you can do. Um, again, if you're a, a large business and, you know, your boy, you know, all these regulations are coming out and we've got all this healthcare data or financial data or, you know, we've got this huge risk and we haven't taken this seriously. Again, what my company does, and I'm not here to sell anything, but, but what Gilware does is a process called risk management where we essentially come in and we behave as your timeshare on a CISO. So we come in, we assess the situation, we make our prioritized recommendations, yeah and we help you on that journey to make good financial decisions. And because most organizations, you know, what a lot of them do is they ran a risk assessment like three years ago, and some company charged them 100 grand and dropped a ream of 200 pages of paper on their desk and say, great, you are boned, look at all these problems. And then they walk away, and the company's just like, what the hell just happened? And, you know, that's, that's kind of a common practice for the risk management world. And we don't do it that way. You know, we come in, and it's a monthly contract, and we advise and implement and hold your IT providers accountable. And we work with them to make sure that things get better every month, and that management and the board and the CFO are all aware what we're spending and why yeah. and what risks have been mitigated. All right. That's, that's some great stuff. We are completely out of time, so I just want to uh, advise our listeners, visit – Gilware.com if you want to discover more about this and how Brian and his team can support you. So Brian Gill of Gilware.com, I'll say that again for our listeners. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been an honor and an education.
dude, it was a lot of fun, and uh, thanks so much for the opportunity. You bet. This is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.